You are listening to The Exchange. This is your host, Dr. Lorraine. Welcome, everybody. Today, we are going to be speaking to Dr. Doug Carpenter, and he is going to be addressing the topic of homosexuality, unnatural affection, and he is a a clinical psychologist. And so I'm so happy, Dr. Carpenter, to have you on. Well, you're very welcome. Thank you for the invitation. I greatly appreciate it. Yeah, I'm happy to be your guest. I will edit that out. Okay. So I wanted to ask, first of all, before we get into the topic, I just wanted you to just introduce yourself, just to let us know where you're from, your family, your education, and and we'll kind of go from there. All right. Uh, I grew up in Southern Illinois. Um, I uh, grew up in Brother Ed Lucas's church and then went to Pastor Suey's church in Herrick, Illinois. I left there when I was 17 and went to Bible school at Kent Christian College in Dover, Delaware, underneath the Trouts, and earned an associate's degree in theological studies. And then I moved to New York and was a music director of a small home missions church that was starting. And I stayed there for seven years while I completed my undergrad and my master's degree um, from Pace University in New York City. My master's degree is specialized in drug and alcohol rehabilitation and addiction. From there, I moved to Springfield, Missouri and earned my doctorate at Forest Institute of Professional Psychology. I earned a doctorate in clinical psychology um, and I've been in practice ever since, so almost 25 years. I currently live in Auburn Hills, Michigan, which is a suburb of Detroit, and I attend Pastor Steve Warman's church. It used to be called known as the Pontiac Church, but we kind of moved across the city line, and now we're in Auburn Hills, so it's a very large apostolic church. Um, I'm married. I have two children. I've been married for 29 years. I have two children. I have a son who's 23, who's a financial advisor, and he's married. And my daughter is 21, and she's currently going to medical school to be a surgeon, a heart surgeon. Awesome. And I have three dogs. Three dogs. (laughs) (laughs) So I want to ask you, you just mentioned Kent uh, College. Did you, you there when Dr. David Norris was there? Yes, he was the Dean of Theology when I was there. So I know brother and sister Norris very well. Awesome. And as I just mentioned to you before, I did go to UGST. Yes. So he was also my professor. And we also mentioned that we just did just found out that my dear friend, Kristen Nichols, is your niece. So yes. isn't that crazy? <laughs> it is crazy how how our lives are interconnected and we don't even know each other. But yes. Yes, I always say niece. that I always say that in Pentecost, people say that, you know, that it's always one degree of separation, that kind of thing. Everybody's six degrees of separation. I always say I, it, it's one. It's, it's gotta one. Be one. <laughs> it's one. <laughs> For sure. I would agree with that. Yeah. And I've been apostolic all my life. So, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, a couple of generations deep. So, yeah, I would say that's probably true for anybody who's been around a long, a long time. So I wanted to go ahead and ask, um, so you mentioned that you are a clinical psychologist, and so that's one of the reasons why we yes. had you on, because I wanted to talk about that part, um, kind of explain some of these questions that many 
of our listeners have been wanting answered or have not kind of understood completely. So <laughs> I wanted to ask you in your practice and in your studying, what types of cases do you mostly work with um, at your job? What are the p- types of um, situations that you counsel with? Okay, so I am a doctorate level clinical psychologist. My wife is a master's level clinical social worker. Okay. We own Insight Counseling Services, which we have 16 therapists and a, a 17th one who's an intern. We see people of, of all ages and all types. Me personally, I mainly see men. I have a handful of women that I see, but I mostly see men. I work a lot with men's issues. I work a lot with men who've been sexually traumatized uh, mm-hmm. or who are struggling with sexual addiction or some kind of unwanted sexual behavior. Mm-hmm. Uh, my master's in addiction lends itself well for me to see men who are struggling with sexual addiction and other types of addiction. Um, I've written a couple of books. Um, and my last book was all about understanding um it's called Secret Shame, uh, Survivor's Guide to Understanding Male Sexual Abuse and Male Sexual Development. So that's one of my big specialties is working with men who've been sexually abused and the after effects of that on their lives and how it's impacting their adult life. Well, I definitely want to add a link to this podcast. So when it is released, so people know where to get your book and where they can purchase that, because I'm sure they're going to want to read that. So yeah. my, um, my website is douglascarpenter.com and okay. the books are there. You can order them through my website, but thank you. Thank you. Yes. That's a wonderful resource for apostolics to have. So I also wanted to ask, like you mentioned, you have been a Pentecostal all your life. Yes. And now, as a Pentecostal, how do you approach uh, the subject of homosexuality? Well, I, I don't approach it really any differently than I do any other kind of uh, issue. Uh, I can't really say it's a mental health issue, but but it, an issue. You know, a lot of that depends on the person and how they view it. You know, some people who come to you and see this as this is something that I don't want in my life. It's unwanted. I don't want to have this attraction to the same sex. We can move it in and treat it like it's almost an addiction for you. So what safeguards are we going to have in your life to help you not move into this, this area of sin? If, you know, if we want to talk about it in the church world is that we believe homosexuality is a sin so it has to be avoided just like any other type of, of sin would be. Mm-hmm. So you can treat it as an unwanted um, sexual behavior that, that you then develop coping strategies around. But mainly I attack it from a viewpoint that I believe that it's probably some kind of trauma-based. Okay. Um, you know, I don't adhere to conversion therapy. That's, that's something that has been denounced and, um, not appropriate for licensed clinicians to practice. And, uh, you know, it saddens me that people still practice, um, that type of therapy. I don't think that's helpful, but I, I think it's the person who struggles in this area needs to examine their past, look at their traumas, look at what may have contributed in their development 
to homosexuality. And so then the process in therapy then is to just go back and kind of process those, undo, redo, and look at how that developed for them and how it led to the feelings that they have. Okay. And that leads me to my next question. So, you know, people often say, um, especially you hear this a lot in the world, that they were born that way. And so, I mean, the way that you're talking about that you're approaching this is, you know, there's got to be some kind of trauma and that makes perfect sense and to me but I'm wondering what about these people that say well I knew from a very young age or I was born this way how do yeah. you kind of address uh, well that? I I don't argue with them about their belief of, of where that came from for them um for a few different reasons um I'm not the all-knowing god I'm not omniscient omniscient. I'm not omnipresent. I can't say whether you were born with that or not. Um, you know, if I look at the fall of man from the garden, sin entered our bodies and it changed us in multiple ways. People are born with anomalies and abnormalities that we can't explain. Um, or that even that we can't explain, but they're still born that way. So I'm not going to go out on a limb and say, no, I don't believe you were born that way. Mm -hmm. Do I personally believe that? I more so believe that it's, that it's a situation of nurture versus nature. Mm -hmm. So like I said, I don't know the effects of sin. I'm not even going to speculate about that. I know that there are not really any research studies that would back up that we are born that way. Now there are differences. Like if if you looked at a homosexual male and a non-homosexual male, we can find differences in brain structure. We can find differences in the size of the hypothalamus, but that still doesn't prove that you were born with a certain sexual orientation. Mm -hmm. Like I said, I believe it's more nurture than nature. I think it has a lot to do with attachment issues, early attachment issues, like how you attach to a caregiver, the quality of relationship that you establish as as a baby and as a toddler to a a parent, to a father, to a mother, to a caregiver, um, how you interact socially, just different stages of development. So I think there's a lot of nurture Mm -hmm. that goes into uh, our personalities and the makeup of who we are. I'm I'm not so quick to say that individuals are just born like a tabula rasa, that we're not just born a blank slate. Although I do think I do think we all come with a genetic material. We all come with a genetic code, and we have predispositions to certain things. Um, but unless those predispositions are acted upon in certain ways then that problem may not ever develop. Like in the in the area of schizophrenia, we know that schizophrenia has genetic markers. Mm-hmm. But if that person with that predisposition is, is put in uh, a healthy environment, that may never completely materialize for them mm-hmm. versus a kid who's put in an impoverished environment or an environment where nurture is not provided, then that that can emerge. There's actually a theory called the stress diathesis model where 
that talks about people who are predisposed to certain things that it takes certain things to in the environment for that to fully emerge. So let's say you were born with a predisposition to homosexuality. I think there's a whole lot of nurture that goes into that to either have that develop or have that not develop. So I spend a lot of time look, helping people examine their attachment issues, their attachment to their caregivers. What was their early life like? What was their adolescence like, their childhood like? How did they interact socially with their peers? What was their level of acceptance? Were they ever bullied as a child? Did they display effeminate characteristics and were considered to be like a non-alpha male? Um, Were they ever exposed to pornography and did that have an influence on your sexual orientation? For example, I've had men tell me before, I never considered same-sex attraction issues until I started, or I was exposed to porn, pornography and started watching pornography. And then I started paying attention to the male. And then that developed some kind of desire in me. Um, so I think early exposure to pornography can play into that. I also think exposure to childhood sexual abuse, especially if the abuse is perpetrated by a male um, that can contribute to that. I When I wrote my last book, I read hundreds of research studies about male sexual abuse. The number one side effect of male sexual abuse for a male is sexual confusion. Mm -hmm. So that can really play into a male's beliefs about his own sexuality and what his longings and desire and cravings develop. So it's, it's, this whole concept of homosexuality is not an easy topic to talk about. It is truly like an onion. It typically has many, many layers for a person who is struggling um, with this. There is, there's even so much as Joseph Nicolosi, who was the father of what's called the reparative therapy, um, which has kind of gotten a bad reputation too, because it's got lumped in with conversion therapy and they're not the same at all. But Nick, Joseph Nicolosi, when he was alive, did a lot of research on family structure. And he found that a high percentage of homosexual men or men who struggle with same-sex attraction came from a family structure where the mother was was very domineering and the father was either passive or abusive. And and he has several books that he's written and he will talk about the the family structure of of families that tend to yield sons or, or individuals of a homosexual nature. So like I said, there's many layers layers to this. It's such an, an onion, you know, and in therapy with someone, you have to begin to pull back those layers of that onion and examine each one of these layers to look at all the things that may have contributed to what culminated into their sexual orientation. And what I'm kind of hearing you say, because I'm thinking about, you know, I have my own education in mental health, thinking that a lot of the mental health 
things that we have, like you said, they, a lot of the like 40% of there's like a predisposition, but then there also has to be like trauma in their life. So it's like the perfect storm of both that predisposition and that trauma that results in a lot of mental health issues just in general. Right. And so, you know, right. those are things that people don't understand. One of the things that I did hear um, Dr. Tina Royer mentioned to me, and she wrote a book, A Natural Affection, and hopefully we'll be hearing from her soon, but she talked about how that, um, you know, that everybody was born into sin and everybody has some sort of thing, but it, in her, you know, the way that she thinks of it is that we all have to be born again, no matter what, as a Christian, as an apostolic, is that we all, no matter what it is, we have to be born again. And right. so, and that was her answer. And I thought, wow, that's, that's an incredible way to look at it. But thinking like, I think about people that are saying, well, you know, I... Um, and more likely to be addicted to alcohol or because my father or there's like, it's kind of like in the blood or, you know, that kind of thing. And I think right. about um, also Psalms when David was talking about um, in my, in, you know, iniquity did my mother conceive me. It kind of like in that there was just kind of that sin that we were born into. And so when I'm hearing you talk about that, I'm thinking, okay, people might have predispositions from certain things like alcohol to be more right. likely to be overweight or alcoholic or maybe sure. not overweight, but sure. that could also be just, but then it's kind of like, and what I'm hearing you say too is like, but is the family structure, is the environment, is, you know, is that feeding into it? Yes. And all those things can feed into it. And, and along the lines with what you were saying is, <clears throat> you know, I told you when we first started this, that I don't treat homosexuality different than any other sexual sin or any kind of sin issue that we all have to make a conscious choice mm -hmm. to choose Christ right. and to choose a walk with him. And, and we are responsible as humans for our salvation mm -hmm. and to approach God and say, you know, I, to repent, to be baptized, to receive the Holy spirit, you know, that is our directive in life is to obey the word of God. And sometimes our natural affections and our natural desires are not going to line up with the word of God and what scripture has called us to do. And no matter what your battle is, you know, we're all called to that same, that same walk. And so that's why I don't treat it as any different than any other sin. It, it may be your cross to bear. It may be your, your issue that you have to fight and face, but every day you have to wake up and choose uh, the life that you live. And I'm, and I'm not saying, I don't want anybody to misunderstand me about saying, I'm not at all saying homosexuality is a choice. I'm not saying that. I'm saying your desire and willingness to live a life that contains salvation is a choice. That's a choice. Right. And so, like you said, there might be a struggle or, or a craving to do something, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to give in to it. So right. that temptation may be there and it's going to be there, but you, you yeah. can decide that you're going to, you know, um, overcome that or work to overcome that. Right, right. It's just like the person who has a genetic predisposition to the 
to depression. Yeah, you know, somebody might say, well, you don't have the joy of the Lord. Well, no, no, they might not. They're fighting depression. Mm -hmm. um, but they still have to wake up and choose right. to be connected and, to God and, and their salvation, even in the midst of having a lack of joy. Yeah. Am I still going to pray? Am I still going to read my Bible? Am I still going to do those things, even right. though I don't feel like it? Right. Or I don't feel like I was born that way. Or, right. you know, and unfortunately, mankind, we deal with a lot of ailments and this life is not easy. It's not hard or it's not easy. And it's, it's a hard life. You know, we wrestle with our spirit. We wrestle with our flesh. Mm -hmm. that we wrestle with our soul and our mind, will, and emotions, you know, all of those things are, are things we have to wrestle with on a daily basis to continue to choose God. Man was born with, with the power of choice. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to jump over to um, one of my other questions since we're talking about this. And so, um, you know, you, we just kind of mentioned that my question was, can people overcome a natural affection? And of course we, you know, we're just talking about that it is a choice. And so as Christians, and I want to talk about more as a, you know, an apostolic base, but people often think that, oh, this is just a spiritual thing and uh, we can pray it away. Um, right. And so that's kind of a, a big misconception. Yeah. And I feel like yes. the more that we talk about mental health, people are thinking, oh, well, you can just pray that away. And, you know, for some, for some, some things, you know, maybe you can, maybe you're feeling down in the dumps and maybe you just need a little bit of prayer, but there are some things right. many times when it's not a spiritual thing and that you right. really do need to go and get help and talk to somebody. And it, it requires a lot more intervention. Um, right. Yeah. Then, I, I'm not a, a big believer in pray the gay away. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, now, do I think you should pray for yourself and to to try to help yourself to be holy and live a holy life? Of course I do. And do I believe that God can completely deliver some someone from homosexuality or same-sex attraction? Of course I do. Right. It's been my experience that I haven't seen that happen many <laughs> times. <laughs> um, I... I think that through the course of therapy, I think through the course of addressing the issues that created that those layers of that onion, that your uh, unnatural affection can decrease. I've rarely seen anyone who struggles with homosexuality or unwanted sexual attraction for it to just completely go away. I've seen it lessen. I've seen it lessen in intensity. I've seen people feel like they can gain a stronger sense of, of control over it and get more in touch with what God has for them and mm -hmm. what the life that they desire to live. I'm currently in the process of writing a book called Arousal Versus Desire, A Battle That Rages. Mm -hmm. And I believe that our sexual desire is... is the portion of us that's incongruent, that is congruent with who God made us to be. Mm -hmm. You know, I think if you ask most little boys or girls when they're little, what do you want to be when you grow up? Well, I want to grow up and I want to be married and I want to have a family. And build. And I think that God puts desire in us for that. 
I think what goes awry is our sexual arousal templates. Mm -hmm. That is like exposure to pornography, um, ineffective parenting, you know, things that write on that blank slate of the part of us that is blank, life and experience writes on there and then pulls us into an area of arousal of things that might not be what God naturally desired for us. Mm-hmm. And that can be trauma related, exposure related, and uh, things that have been conditioned. Mm-hmm. In in uh, we could have a whole conversation about what a sexual template is, but I think we're all born with a a template towards sexuality, and different things get written on that that mm-hmm. that become our our arousal template for sexuality. And they get corrupted by just other things um, that happen to us or that we're exposed to that we're not supposed to be there, that God did not design to be there. Right, right, right. So that sexual arousal part of us would hold our traumas Mm -hmm. that have taken us out of our normal course of development. So I wanted to go into... um, my question, because there's been, I've had several people ask me this, and I personally right now work as a substitute teacher in the public school system, just part-time while I'm doing my education. And so I have personally seen um, children as young as eight years old, you know, come into school and having these kind of, you know, effeminate behaviors. And to me, I've kind of been blown away. And I think that younger and younger children are starting to struggle with these things. Um, And so I wanted to ask, you know, what do you say to parents who have children that think they have feelings towards the same sex? Or maybe they think, you know, I mean, I think eight, seven years old, you know, coming home from school and I've heard these stories of what do I tell my kids? They think that, you know, they like girls and, you know, what does that kind of look like? And I, I think too, what you're kind of saying, you know, the nurture versus nature, but it's just kind of blowing my mind that it's, it seems to be happening at such a younger and younger age. Right. Well, we could do a whole podcast on that too, but um, I personally think um, the biggest thing I try to tell parents is don't freak out. Mm -hmm. Don't make this some big ordeal. You know, don't turn this into a big catastrophe. Sit down with your child talk to them, have an open discussion, you know, really at age seven or eight, they don't understand attraction, sexual attraction, you know, and and in fact, that is an age where they're supposed to be more bonding with the same sex Mm -hmm. than they are the opposite sex. It's not really time for them to bond with the opposite sex. So they may be very confused about the feelings that they're experiencing. They may be um, confused about stuff they've seen on TV or things they're hearing at school. They may be, if they're in a public school, they may be being taught about transgenderism and, and homosexual lifestyles. And so they may just be confused about what they're feeling. You may need to sit down and talk to them about, okay, what, what does that mean to you? What, when you say that you're attracted to girls or you're attracted to boys, okay, what does that, what does that mean? Um, Mm -hmm. How do you, how are you defining attraction? 
you know, it I, be maybe that they're just, they get along with them really well. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So for example, my son would, will probably kill me if he hears this. Um, we got a call when he was in the third grade because he told another female student that he wanted to have sex with her. <laughs> and when I sat down and talked to him, I was like, well, tell me about that. What, what would that mean if you had sex with her? Well, and what he wanted to do is he wanted to give her a kiss. <laughs> <laughs> that, was his, um, that was his understanding of sex. At the that time. was his understanding. So that was very different mm -hmm. from the words that he was using and the words that he had heard. So, you know, the, the very first rule of thumb there is seek to understand. As a parent, you have to seek to understand where your child's at. What are they thinking? What, what's in their head? What do they think that means? And, and to not freak out, because if you freak out, then they're going to, they're going to have fear and they're going to withdraw. And then they're not going to be authentic with their thoughts and feelings, you know, and, and if it does come to a place where you sense that there is some real sense of attraction, maybe taking them to therapy to explore that mm -hmm. is important. Maybe they're being rejected by their own peer group mm -hmm. um, at school. Maybe they're um, being bullied. Maybe there are other things contributing to them feeling like they're being pushed in a certain direction with mm -hmm. their feelings and so that would make perfect sense because i feel like you know i like what you're saying ask ask them questions just right. ask them questions not attacking questions or not condemning like i can't you know but just like what does that mean to you because you're right like at that age what they say and what's actually you know what they're actually talking about are two completely Dude. different things their understanding is just yes different. yes very much so and so you have to understand where they're coming from and another thing like um you know it, I, my first book that i wrote was childhood trauma and the non-alpha male and and what i mean by that is I think there are a large percentage of boys who don't fit this alpha male stereotype, mm -hmm. but then they don't know where do I fit? Mm -hmm. You know, I like art. I like music. I like dance. I like to act. I like, you know, I, I don't like football. I don't like to work on cars. I don't like to get dirty. So those boys then can become confused about, okay, where is my place and where do I fit in? Mm-hmm. You know, and what does that say about me as a human? And then how how do my peers relate to me around that? And so sometimes a lot of these things aren't aren't issues about sexuality. They're issues about masculinity or they're issues about femininity for girls who are like tomboys and like and do like sports and don't like to, you know, frill and braid their hair and cook and whatever. You know, I'm being I'm being very stereotypical right, right. <laughs> just for exaggeration at the moment. But, um, you know, a lot of times at that age, it's really issues of masculinity and identity, not sexuality, because their, their brains are not until they enter puberty and start experiencing some sense of sexuality and attraction. You, it's something else. It's not that because their brains aren't ready to process that type of information yet. Mm 
Mm-hmm. And that's really great that you're saying that because I think that for me, I hadn't really thought about that, that just thinking that we have such a stereotype of what, you know, a young lady should be, and she's got to be super girly girl. And if she's not super girly girl, then, you know, if maybe she plays, uh, I don't know, she, you know, I'm thinking in, you know, in element, she plays softball or, yeah. or she's right. doing something different, or she doesn't want to, you know, I don't know, play with the princess dolls, or she wants to do something right. different. And we automatically label her or society or even, you know, we just, there's this label yes. that she must not be labels, right. Or she must not have attraction to <laughs> um, the opposite sex that she must be this. Yeah. And, and I can imagine that with young men, that's also even worse because right. But I want to, you know, like you said, I want to play, do art. I want to do something different. I don't want to be a football player. And you know, for me, that's good. You don't want to be a football player. That's all right. But right. So in my first, in my first book, I talk a lot about, especially in, I think it's like chapter 24, um, where I list 25 tips, parenting tips. Mm -hmm. And really, if I could summarize those 25 tips, it would be that you need to help your child develop into an individual. Mm-hmm. And that is paying attention to them, to their likes, to their dislikes. What are their natural giftings? Mm-hmm. How do you farm those natural giftings? How do you help them develop those, those natural giftings? Um, and help them become confident in the individual that they are and that God created them to be not what society's definition of masculinity is, not what society's definition of femininity is for a child. You have to see your child as uniquely created by God and develop that individual Mm -hmm. to be a confident, whole person. And that takes a lot of skill as a parent to really pay attention to your child, to really know your child. Mm-hmm. And I feel like it's not, um, I'm what's going through my mind right now is thinking that I think it it's even harder when you're in the church, because there is that, you know, that standard, and it's a good standard, I'm not saying that it's a bad standard at all, but it we're just so even quicker to label, um, you know, because of how we dress and how we act, but I, I just think right. you're you're so right on the money. Of course, you are right on the money. Just thinking like that. I wish we kind of would talk about this more. We need to talk about this more. Um, that it really just is okay for them to be an individual. That it's about. It's not about how or the things that they're interested in necessarily. It's it all comes down to do they act on a sexual attraction? Like that's where right. things kind of go you know, the confusion starts, if they're actually acting or contemplating, or they actually do have some, uh, you know, same sex sex attraction, but if that's not Mm. going on, and they're just kind of like different things, you know, that's just, they like different things. You know, I, I think parenting is a lot like when you go to the bowling alley, and you put bumpers on the sides, to keep the ball in the lane. I think that's a lot of what parenting is. Mm-hmm. Now that ball can go anywhere it wants to go between those two lanes, but the bumpers are still there. It's mm-hmm. up to healthy parents to provide the boundaries 
for kids to explore their world. Like, for example, my son uh, took an archery class when he was in the seventh grade, and he was phenomenal at it. He could really hit the bullseye, hit the trigger. Well, I'm not a big outdoorsman. I don't hunt. I don't kill animals. (laughs) You know, that's just not my thing. So what I did is I got him connected with some other men in the church who were good at that activity Mm -hmm. and got him involved in their lives. So they would take him out to do some of these things with him. Mm -hmm. And so you have to know your child, but you have to then provide the appropriate boundaries for them to explore certain things. So let's say you had a little boy who really likes to cook. Okay, we'll get him into an environment with another successful man who's a cook and get him cooking lessons, mm-hmm. you know, provide the boundaries and and never make it attached to sexuality or gender. Right. This is a gift God has given you as an individual. Yeah. You know, and then it's up to you to farm that as a parent and to help them grow that into a trait and a characteristic that God wanted develop in, it developed in them. Not what society says is masculine and feminine or what the church says is masculine and feminine. And Right. And I feel like some parents, they, a lot of them who, you know, maybe the father is an alpha male and uh, they, you know, they want their children to be, like them. And I think that's kind of one of the things. And I think it's so great. You're saying that parents have to be comfortable with, you know, like your example is, is like, I'm going to let somebody else, you know, that I feel comfortable with help right. my son to do something that maybe I'm not doing, but that's okay. And I feel like sometimes <laughs> there's that, there's like that push of like, I'm this way. So you're my right. child. And so you must also adhere to you know, who I am and and yes. what I want you to be. Yeah. yeah. And it's funny because in my home, I feel like I have the exact opposite. I feel like uh, I'm definitely not an alpha male. Uh, I'm very musical. I played the piano since I was a very young child. I played in church for 40 years. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I'm a psychologist. I deal with emotions all day long. You know, I, I'm not your alpha male, but I raised a son who's very alpha male. Mm-hmm. Um, which is just funny, you know, but I just paid attention when he was young, he loved trucks. He loved the drums, you know, I, as a child and all through all probably till he was in high school, I took him to monster truck rallies (laughs) because he loved that. The kid can play ball with any ball he picks up. He's good at, well, I, I am not a sports person at all, but so I've just put him in environments where he could continue to grow these skills. And I recognized where my limitations were, where my limitations stopped. And then I I got him other people to help him develop those skills. So, you know, I'm a non-alpha male, raised a very alpha child, (laughs) (laughs) you know, but it's, it, again, it just goes back to paying attention to your child. You know, again, again, I said this a minute ago, I think a lot of things that get deemed sexuality are really issues with masculinity and femininity for boys and girls. Mm -hmm. And if they were appropriately addressed 
and and cared for and nurtured, there wouldn't be an issue. You know, I remember one time I had a family bring their son to me who was um, a, a little more effeminate and his favorite color was pink. And, you know, I just talked to him about boys can like the color pink. That doesn't say anything about you. Mm-hmm. You know, this isn't masculine or feminine. Just because society says this curl, this color belongs to girls and this color belongs to boys, that's not really true. Mm-hmm. It's a color. It belongs to anybody. I like the color blue. I think my favorite color has always been, you know, navy blue. Blue has always been a favorite. I didn't like pink growing up, but I don't think right. you know, maybe it's more different for, for boys than it is for girls. But I didn't hear anybody come and tell me, I can't believe you don't like pink. You know, like right. your favorite color is blue. You know, your car, you have had three cars or two cars that are blue. You know, why? Why don't you have a pink car? Why don't you, you know? And so I think right. that the opposite couldn't necessarily be said yeah. of a young man. It would be yeah. a much harder thing for him to kind of admit to people without having some sort of shame or, yeah. you know. Well, and another thing I often tell parents <clears throat> is, a lot of these things that parents get upset about are just phases mm-hmm. in kids' lives and and allow them the space and time to work through them and mm-hmm. be there for them and work through them with them. Mm-hmm. You know, like I had a I had parents, apostolic parents come to me one time and their kid had went out and he had dyed his hair bleach blonde. Um, and he was a dark headed kid and they were just flipping out about like, what are people at church going to think? And I'm like, it's just hair. It is just (laughs) hair, you know, let him have this for a couple months and he'll probably go, I look ridiculous and he'll dye it back. It's normal color and he'll be on with life. And that's exactly what happened. Mm -hmm. You know, some of this stuff is just phases and adolescents, kids try on many different hats, trying to figure out which one fits me. (laughs) And we need to be healthy parents that provide boundaries to let them explore and try on those different hats until they find their own identity. So a lot of these things I think that people freak out about are just phases. And if we would just help young people through those phases, they would come out on the other end and be fine. Mm -hmm. And I think too, you know, as you're saying that, I'm thinking I... I can imagine what some, you know, a church member would think about that just scenario of like they died there, you know, and you're just okay with that. Like, what is their like spiritual rebellion and, you know, their, the devil kind of hold of their life, right. you know? <laughs> no, the kid probably saw some actor on TV that he liked who had dyed his hair bright blonde. And so he's like, you know, I want to be my own individual. I want to stand out. Uh, uh, whatever. So why? It's hair. <laughs> it will grow back. I, I yeah, I think that that would definitely be one of those things that would hit parents like in the face and like you know yeah. just, what you know just a realization. Um, you know, I think of um, and I know this is not quite the same thing, but I'm thinking about you know some kid that gets you know their gum stuck in their hair and they have to you know, cut the little girl's hair because she's right. got gum in her hair, you know, um, you know, what are people going to say? Because she cut her, you know, it's just, yeah. yeah it's who, are, who are we worried about? What are other people are going to think or the care of our child? Right. Right. Yeah, that's true. What is this really about? 
Right. Right. And it's so I say to parents all the time, I'm like, in five years when this is over and it and it and you haven't dealt with it for three and a half years, what are you going to look back and think? You're going to look back and think, you know what, this really wasn't that big of a deal. And it worked <laughs> itself out. So let's jump ahead five years and let's think about how you're going to feel in that moment. And how how is that going to change how you're reacting now? Mm-hmm. And so <laughs> I I didn't mention this in one of my um, the questions, but I did kind of just was as we were talking, just thinking about what is the point that that we think that or the parents should consider, like, okay, you know, my child needs to see somebody, or what does that kind of look like? Is it like they're having you know identity issues, or they're just feeling like what kind of things would they kind of say to their parents to let them know or behaviors that would mean like, you know, this is something serious. This is something bigger than what our family can kind of support them and love them. What, when do we need to take them to somebody professional? Yeah. Well, I first want to say that therapy is not the devil. Right. Right. Exactly. (laughs) It's not of the devil. Um, most of the time, psychologists don't even bring the concept of God up with your children or, or you, even as an individual, um, nobody's there to take your religion or your spirit or your Holy ghost away from you. That is not the goal of a psychologist. We are there to hopefully increase the quality of your life. Mm -hmm. So let me first say that because I think there are so many people who are afraid to go to therapy, which, you know, yeah, I, I think it's probably great if you find a Christian psychologist or a Christian therapist, um, But I think any time that you see that your child is not fitting in with his peer, his or her peer group, that can lead to lasting effects and damage and trauma. And so that might be a time when you think my child may need some extra support. So going to therapy would be good if you're aware that your child is being bullied if your child has been exposed to pornography, if your child has been sexually abused, um, if your child is beginning to ask questions of you that you feel like as a parent that you don't know the answers to or have the answers to, um, you know, if, if they are entering puberty and you find that they're looking at pornography, um, that can be a time if they're looking at pornography of the same sex, it may be time for them to go sit and talk about their questions with someone. Um, you know, I don't think there's I- any one catastrophic thing that a child could say or do that's going to signify that it's time to for them to see a professional, you know, and it's also not any big deal for you to take them to a therapist and for a therapist to see them for a couple of sessions and then say, I, I don't think there's anything here for you to worry about. Mm-hmm. You know, how many times do we go to the medical doctor for something and the doctor looks at it and says, oh, you know, that's nothing. It's just, you know, it's a swollen lymph node. It'll go away in, you know, a couple of weeks. Just just mm-hmm. go on about your life. And we go on about our life and we don't think any more of it. You know, I don't think there's anything wrong with going in and seeing a therapist for a time or two to just see if there's something that needs to be explored there. So, so I don't think there's any, there's no hard and fast rule about this. It's more about going back to what I said earlier, being an effective parent that knows your child 
and understanding when your child's off a little bit and may need some extra support or someone to talk to. That's the important thing. That's when you know it's time to take them to someone else who can offer them that support, either a counselor at school or a, or a professional counselor in some way. Does that answer your question? Yeah. Yes, and I think it's true. It also is maybe they're maybe not gonna, you know, maybe children are not gonna come out and just say like I need help. You know, those are not the things that they're gonna say. Right. You know, their behaviors maybe are different, or there's something going on that is just off. And and you see a change in grades, a change in uh, friend groups. If you see a child starting to isolate. Um, all of those can be indicators that that something is something is not the same with this child. Something's not consistent, and you'll want to pay attention to that. And I think sometimes that um, there is this idea that oh, you know, it'll they'll just get over it. And maybe maybe if it does, there might be you know if it if it goes longer than maybe usual if it's not just a phase you know and and there might be um just lasting effects like you said if there is some kind of bullying or some kind of things going on it's it's better to kind of come in sooner than later if you're aware um right that these kinds of things are happening so um and also i like what you said that it's just it's so much better to go to counseling and and see somebody instead of just think that you can handle everything and and sometimes we can handle things but when it just becomes too big for you there's nothing wrong you know psychologists counselors are not the devil (laughs) right right I think that really is what my podcast and 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 I'm so glad you know the work that you do and so many of our other apostolic people and just therapists in general is like understanding that you know breaking the stigma is such an important thing because um, when we live in shame and don't talk about it, then people who need to get help are not getting help. Right. Well, it's just like you're, you're working to be a marriage and family therapist. Right. You know, the problem is I see so, and this is, this is whether it's inside the church or outside the church, it doesn't matter, Mm -hmm. but people wait to go to marriage counseling when their marriage is on life support. Mm -hmm. Well, how many people come back from life support? Right. That's true. You know, you have to start this process when problems begin, mm-hmm. not when they're on life support. And so, you know, that's another thing I would just encourage parents that if you see something, you know, try to stave it off in the beginning, you know, try to address it at the beginning. I have lots of parents say, you know, I wish I wish I hadn't waited so long to bring my kid in, you know, because now you know, when I had a suspicion that they were smoking marijuana, now they're, you know, hooked on three or four different drugs. I wish I would have, you know, acted on this much sooner. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. And I would just encourage parents to to do that or anyone who's experiencing any kind of difficulty. Don't Mm -hmm. wait till the situation's on life support to seek help. Right. And prevention is always better than intervention. If we can do prevention, right. then get ahead of it until we get to that point where things, like you said, are on um, life support. And I remember Dr. Cindy Miller saying that, you know, people don't come to therapists until it's on life support. Exactly what she said. Oh, okay. That, yeah. I know like, her. Yeah. And I, Cindy's great. Yeah. So uh, I'm UGSD glad that. professor. Yeah. She's yeah. Amazing. And so just thinking about that, it's like, wow, that, that really is the truth. 
Um, so I wanted to kind of go, I know that we've talked a lot about children, which I know that people are going to be thankful that we talked about this since we, like I mentioned, we're seeing these, these things kind of younger and younger, but um, I wanted to ask, um, as an apostolic, what can the church do to support individuals who are struggling with homosexuality? Um, and I think that, you know, in the day that we live in, we're going to see more and more of those um, types of people that are struggling and, and coming into church, but what can we do? to help them? Well, I have lots of thoughts about this. <laughs> uh, you know, it saddens me, first of all, that the church isn't more open to this topic and to these individuals. You know, it seems to me, like in the church world, that we have a few sins that are just paramount. You know, abortion, homosexuality, you know, fornication, you know, we have these things that are worse sins than any other sins, mm -hmm. which is not what the Bible says, Right. <laughs> you know, um, and I think we have to make room for these people and drop the stigma that, that their sin or their issue brings along with it. And that we have to love them just like we love any other sinner. Um, or somebody who's struggling. Um, it, it saddens me that the apostolic movement has not come up with a way to help people who are struggling with same-sex attraction issues. Um, there are a couple, like the Catholic Church is actually very good at addressing this for their parishioners. They have a whole program called Courage. Um, the Latter-day Saints are, is another organization that has done a phenomenal job of reaching their people who struggle with same-sex attraction. Um, they have a conference every year called North Star. Um, one organization that I do want to mention is for men who are struggling with same-sex attraction, there is a really good spiritually-based religious organization called Brothers Road. And they have specific uh, weekend retreats for men. And a lot of those men, those retreats for men are about working on childhood wounds and things that were part of that onion that, that added to those layers that contributed to um, your same-sex attraction. And so many of the... Um, conferences and many of the retreats that they have are about helping men get in touch with their true sense of masculinity and the masculinity that God gave them and who God desired them to be. Mm -hmm. So there are organizations out there that can help uh, mm -hmm. men who find themselves struggling. And I, I think there's one for women too. I'm not as familiar with that because I work more with men, but inside the church, I think we have to love these individuals. We have to not shame them for their feelings, um, not treat this like it's any, it's worse than any other area of life that people are struggling with. We need to encourage them to find godly counsel, um, to go to therapy, to work on their issues, to work on any past trauma that's there. Um, and we can for sure pray for them. We can pray with them. Um, I don't think we have to treat them like they're diseased or they have leprosy or that God needs to deliver them, which, yeah, we, yeah, we can pray for them to be delivered from this, this 
burden that they've had to carry. Um, <clears throat> I think we just need to be, be more supportive and open-minded. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I think those are such great things to say and that needs to be said even more so. And I'll be honest with you, um, when I was living in St. Louis, when I was attending UGST, I remember going to a Missouri uh, youth convention and um, Brother Aaron Soto was talking about um, some of the people that were in his church that had been converted. And he showed a picture of somebody on the screen who is of a homosexual lifestyle and the whole crowd just hushed. You know, there was no words. I think it was just such a shock factor. And and then he right. said, you know, don't judge this person because now, you know, they're living for God and now they're reaching the homosexual community. You know, right. they, they have their life transformed. And, you know, he said, don't get quiet on me. You know, and I just I think about that often oh, when I, right. um, you know, this topic comes to mind of how, you know, the way that sometimes we react is if it is like the worst sin in the world <laughs> right 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 it is just you know just as bad as any other sin and and people need love and yes. care acceptance and nurturing acceptance. you know some of those things are what led them down this road and and by acting like they have leprosy or the plague you're only perpetuating that issue within them right. versus reaching them mm -hmm. you know i mean Look at the people Jesus hung out with. Yes, yes, <laughs> for example, sinners. Right, right. And so we have to be open and loving and caring as the arms and legs and feet of Jesus. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and everybody is at a different point in their walk in life and in their Christian walk. And if homosexuality or same-sex attraction is something that someone struggles with, it's no different than somebody else who's on their journey of quitting smoking or stopping drinking or, or mm -hmm. whatever, you know, in, in their, their course of, of establishing their relationship with Jesus. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Exactly. Well, I just wanted to know if there's anything else that you wanted to mention as we close this conversation, as I've thoroughly enjoyed um, talking with you about this subject. And again, I'm just like, we need to talk about this more. And I'm so glad you mentioned that you do yes. a lot of podcasts and you've written books and you do all of these amazing things. And so um, what wonderful sources that you have created yeah. for people that are searching. I, you know, hear about people searching for this information all the time. So I'm glad that we've been able to tap into this in this podcast, but I just wanted to ask, are there any closing remarks or anything that you want to say Sure. There, there's one more thing that I want to mention. I'm also on the leading, uh, the leadership team for another uh, worldwide organization called Husband Material, husbandmaterial.com. And that started as a Christian organization to help men overcome pornography. But it is, it is quickly spread to men overcoming any type of unwanted sexual behavior who are Christian. So if you're a man and you're struggling with pornography or some kind of unwanted sexual behavior, like webcamming or some kind of fetish, whatever, there is, there is help out there. And there are resources, Christ, strong Christian-based resources that are available for you. Um, the, the piece that I want to say here is I really just want to encourage people to not be judgmental. Mm 
that every person's life is an onion and it took layers and layers and layers to create the person that they are. We are a conglomeration of our life experiences. Mm-hmm. And please don't judge another person. You don't know the shoes they've walked in. You, you don't know the layers of that onion that have been added to them. And the, the best way we can reach our world is, is through love, compassion, curiosity, courage, all the fruits of the spirit. That's the way we love and reach people, no matter what their sin. Right. And that's, those are the qualities that Jesus gave to the people around him. And I want to be that kind of vessel for him to use. I don't want to be quick to judgment. You know, when I see someone in the church who's falling away or committed a sin, I don't want to jump to judgment. Mm-hmm. I want to jump to compassion and curiosity and and to reach out a hand to help them along. So I just, that's something I want to say. Um, you know, if if we ever get the chance to do this again, I have a whole nother podcast that goes through about eight or nine different layers of that onion that contribute can contribute to people having homosexual attractions that I recently did a podcast with a Jewish rabbi and uh, we for the Jewish community because it's very similar in the Jewish com- community homosexuality is not an accepted lifestyle and you know much like in the apostolic world and so you know they're also trying to find ways to help individuals in their religious community who are making these struggles. And so, you know, there's a, there's so much to this topic and it's just so many layers deep. So just be aware of that if you're Mm -hmm. listening today and uh, that people's lives are very complex and they're very complicated. And so give people the respect that, that they deserve having lived a complicated life. Well, I appreciate you coming on and speaking to us. And, you know, again, like you mentioned, there are so many other things that we could talk about in so many different directions. And this was kind of a a kind of a compound thing of this subject, but you have done it so well and uh, given us a lot of things to think about. I mean, you've got me thinking about so many things. And I know that there have been many um, pastors and pastors' wives and, you know, parents that want to have these answers and and are curious and and want to know what they can do so thank you again dr you are very welcome i greatly appreciate the invitation and the opportunity and i did want to mention before i we do go on that you are a member of the center for apostolic counseling i am yes and so and so that is an organization that the upci has and so um, your information is on that website as well. Correct. All right. Well, thank you so much to all of our listeners from the Exchange Podcast. This is Dr. Lorraine signing off. God bless everybody. Bye.